trying not to lose total control there. You want to get out your sermon outline. It says God's names uh, on it. Going through our Advent series, looking at some of the prophecies of Isaiah. And today we're in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we're going to look at God's names. So, if you would look either in your uh, outline or in your bulletin or open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. For most of you, if you open your Bibles in the middle, you'll come to Isaiah. Uh, If you get to Psalms, then you need to go to the right a little bit. But we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 today. And it tells us, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us your people. Thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness and its truth. We thank you for how it points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray today that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and above all, to behold the wonderful counselor himself. Focus us on your word and on your son, because we desperately need him this morning. Help us to see Jesus today, for we ask in his all-powerful and big enough name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are talking about names today. And one of the many important decisions that confront new parents is what name shall we give to our baby? And if you're in that situation and you can't decide, let me know, because I think there's some great Old Testament names that would work really well. Last week I, I mentioned to you Maharshala Hashbaz. That's awesome. We call him Baz for short. So it probably would only work for a boy. So, But anyways, most parents spend hours uh, figuring out, debating, trying to uh, come up with uh, a name and, and answering this question of what shall we name our baby? Shall the new baby be named after his father or his uncle or a favorite friend? Should she be given a name that happens to be popular uh, at the moment or one that simply sounds good? And then you have to make sure the initials don't spell something embarrassing. The names are important because once you pick out a name, the child's stuck with it for a long, long time. Babies have no voice in the selection of their names. They have to live with them to live them up or live them down. Names are important because you tend to become what your name represents. Now, I've done a few weddings uh, this year, and when it comes to the wedding vows, I like to use the first and the middle name there. So, uh, for example, uh, when uh, I did my daughter's wedding uh, a while ago, uh, it was, do you, James Andrew, uh, take 
uh, Sarah Constance to be your wedded wife. So I like using um, the first and the middle names. It makes it more personal. Now, there was a big wedding in the world this year, uh, probably the, one of the largest weddings uh, in our lifetime, the British Royal Wedding uh, at the beginning of last summer, and uh, when Prince William married Catherine Middleton. When it came time for them to take their vows and for Prince William to take his vows, it was I, William Arthur Philip Louis, take you, Catherine Elizabeth, to be my wedded wife. Of course, if you, and I, I look this up, his full name and titles read as follows. His Royal Highness the Prince William Arthur Philip Louis, Duke of Cambridge, Earl of Strathorne, Baron Carrick Fergus, Royal Knight Companion of the Most Noble Order of the Garter. Now, if you think that's a heavy load to lay on a lad, remember he's royalty, he needs a long name. Not to mention he's a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, a flight lieutenant in the Royal Air Force, and a captain in the Blues and Royals Regiment. But things could be worse. Could be much worse. Could be his father. Because the full name of William's father, Prince Charles, uh, the, the shorthand version is Charles Philip Arthur George of the House of Windsor. But when you get the whole name with all the titles, I tried to do this in one breath and I couldn't. Um, so I'm not going to try again. But his titles are, the name and titles, His Royal Highness the Prince Charles Philip Arthur George, Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, Duke of Rothsay, Earl of Carrick, Baron of Renfrew, Lord of the Isles, Prince and Great Steward of Scotland, Royal Knight Companion of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Royal Knight Companion of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Knight Grand Cross of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, and the rest of the house, I'm sure, Member of the Order of Merit, Knight of the Order of Australia, Companion of the Queen's Service Order, Member of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, and personal aide-de-camp to Her Majesty the Queen. And his military ranks are General of the British Army, Admiral of the Royal Navy, and Air Chief Marshal of the Royal Air Force. So what does all this have to do with Isaiah chapter 9? Well, in this verse, we learn that giving multiple names to royalty didn't begin with the British Empire. And so it is with Jesus. Even before his birth, he was a child with many names. <coughs> the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before he was born, prophesied that the Messiah would have four names. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this verse reveals four names for Jesus. And each one unlocks an aspect of his character. They teach us who he is and how he can help us today. And one of our uh, most beloved Christmas carols is cast in the form of a very plaintive question. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? This morning you have that question come to mind. Listen to Isaiah's divinely inspired answer because these four names speak to us of wisdom, power, love, and blessing. 
We're going to start with the first one, Wonderful Counselor, which is the name of wisdom. Literally, this title means a wonder of a counselor. It speaks of the wisdom of his plan. The word wonderful means astonishing or extraordinary. Now, the word wonderful in Hebrew is about as close as you can get to ascribing deity because he's the one who elicits wonder. He's the one who elicits awe. It's easier to read if it's right side up. And he elicits wonder and awe through the way that he counsels. He understands your condition. He understands your situation. He really does. He understands what your needs are this morning. And he understands the deepest recesses of that psyche of yours and mine. There's no situation. There's no context. There's no pain. There's no hurt. There's no problem. There's no difficulty that he doesn't understand. And he's able to minister and able to give words of wisdom and words of encouragement and words of strength and is able to reach down <coughs> into the depths of that problem to give help and support and relief and a peace that passes understanding. He is a wonderful counselor. First, that means he's reliable. Those who come to him will never be led astray. <coughs> There's a lot of people make their living, excuse me, <coughs> something not working. There's a lot of people make their living giving advice to others, being counselors. Some of them are on TV uh, and in the papers. Dear Abby, Ann Landers, Dr. Laura, Dr. Phil, they all make their living giving advice, but they can't claim perfection. And there's plenty of counselors out there. Psychiatrists routinely uh, charge uh, from $100 to $500 an hour for their counsel. And uh, much of it is good and some not so much. But the Lord goes to no one for advice. And when anyone comes to him, he gives them the counsel that they need. Think of how the New Testament and how Isaiah and how other parts of the Scripture ascribe this type of divine wondrous, heavenly wisdom to Jesus. God made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Then we're told in Colossians 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the first one tells us that he is wisdom, and the second one tells us he has all the treasures of wisdom. So he is wisdom and he has wisdom. And uh, even the prophet Isaiah tells us later on in Isaiah 53, a very famous chapter, that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities because he knows exactly what is needed to save sinners. He's therefore the perfect teacher and the ultimate counselor. And that gives us insight into his workings. His plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. He will accomplish things beyond human comprehension and he will do it in ways that we cannot fathom. He'll do the greatest work ever accomplished and he'll do it successfully. 
Now, a violent death would not be man's way to victory, but it was God's plan, and our Lord carried it out perfectly. So let me sort of apply this truth in this way. As the wonderful counselor, he gives the good, right, wholesome direction to his people. And part of the promise we get at the beginning of this chapter is those who follow him will not walk in darkness, but in the light of day. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So in this tiny baby, we see all the wisdom of God wrapped in swaddling clothes. So here's the first attribute of Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. In contrast to all the unwisdom, not sure that's a word, is now. The unwisdom of earthly kings who have led God's people into peril and destruction. He will lead them in wisdom. And the Bible says his wisdom is wondrous. He's a wonderful counselor. That's first. He's also a mighty God, which is the name of power. Mighty God. Speaks of the power of accomplishment, and it's a statement of deity. The baby born in the manger is not just the Son of God. He's also God the Son. He's not just the Son of God. He's also God the Son. All the fullness of God dwells in the Lord Jesus. As the ancient creed uh, declares, he is very God of very God. That can never be said of any other human baby. There's something else important in this title. The word translated mighty is the Hebrew word gabor, which means strong one or powerful, valiant warrior. And thus the term mighty God, El Gabor, is actually a military title. He's the God who fights for his people. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the power of the Assyrians in Isaiah's day, or all the big shots of the world throughout history, that he defeats them by coming as a mere child. His answer to all the bullies <coughs> who uh, swagger through history is not to become a bigger bully. The answer is Jesus. And at the incarnation, God took the form of human flesh. That's why we saw excuse me, a couple weeks ago, one of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. <coughs> that's something at the back of my throat that's driving me nuts. So let's look at the first two titles, take them together. What do you have? As a wonderful counselor, he makes all wise plans. And as a mighty God, he makes the plans work. So these things work together. He makes the plans, and he makes the plans work. And all of his wonderful plans will be carried out with all of God's infinite might. There is in this little baby all the strength of deity. The power of God is in those tiny fists. He has strength which is divine. The omnipotence of God is at his command. Whatever he desires, he is able to achieve. Now, I'll apply this one this way. When we meet Jesus, we meet God. And if he's not the mighty God, then we're deceived. And it would be blasphemy to worship him. There's no middle ground here. If he's not God, we are fools 
to worship him. But if he is God, then we're fools not to. If Jesus is nothing but a man, then all we do at Christmas is in vain. At this point, it's important that we not give in to the sentimental nonsense that Christmas is this feel-good ecumenical holiday. Christmas is the great dividing line of the human race. And it shouldn't surprise us that there's people that want to expunge Christmas from all aspect of public life. Because they may understand better than us that Christmas is based on the belief that at Bethlehem, the God incarnate was born. And if that's not true, then we're just wasting our time this morning. We're deluded and deceived and of, uh, of all men most to be pitied. But if he is the mighty God, then when we rely on him, we're relying on God himself. He's the mighty God because we need divine wisdom. We need divine power to help us in our battle. Satan and sin would every day defeat us. But he is the mighty God who has already defeated them. In this tiny baby, we see the power of God sleeping on Mary's lap. And so we see wisdom and power, but we also see love because he's our everlasting father which is the name of love. In the Hebrew, the phrase is literally the father of eternity. It speaks of the purpose of his coming. He is before, above, and beyond time. He's the possessor of eternity. He's eternally like a father to his people. This is not a statement about the Trinity, but about the character of our Lord, the character of Christ. And all that a good father is, Jesus is to his people. Because he's like a father, he cares for his people. Because he owns eternity, he can give us eternal life. And that's fairly important for those of us that live on this sin-soaked planet. Because no one lives forever. Sooner or later, we'll all find our own place in the graveyard. We're not immortal in this world. This world, we're transitory. Now, there is a next world coming where we will live uh, forever. But not, not now, not here. Someday we're all going to die. We're here today, gone tomorrow. And a dead Christ does us no good because dying men need an undying Christ. And the key phrase here is he's a father forever. He's a father forever. That's important to me. Uh, I have a father. My father's one of my heroes but he's not a father forever. And my father had a father, but he's gone now. Colonel William Silvernail was a good man, but he's not a father forever. And he had a father, my great-grandfather, William Andrus Silvernail, but he was not a father forever. In fact, he was gone just before I was born. And I'm a father as well. I'm a father to David, who's a father, Rebecca, Sarah, Daniel, and Samuel, and a father-in-law to Rachel, John, and Andy, who will soon be a father. But still, I'm not a father forever. Someday I, too, will pass away. All human fathers must go. But Jesus is a father forever. And he's just what we need, because that means his love is forever. It will never pass away. 
You know, when my children need anything, I will run to help them. If they cry, I go. If they want me, I will come. And I will never kick them out, at least not yet. They belong to me. They're my children. My sons bear my name. What I am in a poor way to them, Jesus is in a perfect way to all who believe in him. And so in this tiny baby, we see the love of God sleeping in a stable. Wisdom, power, love, and finally we see he is the Prince of Peace, which is the name of blessing. The phrase literally means the Prince whose coming brings peace. It speaks of the effects of his coming. And this final title is sort of the the climax of all that's come before. The word Prince literally means the Son of the Sovereign. Very appropriate in this case. It speaks of his high position. The word peace speaks of his basic nature. You know, every now and then you read that uh, there are more wars and conflicts raging right now than at any time in the last century. All over the globe, there are ethnic conflicts and tribal wars. Closer to home, not a day goes by without... Uh, reading that someone else has been murdered in metropolitan Washington. We see so much killing, it no longer surprises us and doesn't even bother us. We've become immune to violence because we live in a violent world. But Isaiah 9 tells us that God's plan for world peace is focused on one person, a baby asleep in a manger in Bethlehem. He's the ultimate man of peace, In the past, his coming made peace with God. In the present, those who come to him find peace when Christ enters in. And in the future, his coming again will usher in a kingdom of peace. There is no peace today. So much strife and bloodshed. But that doesn't mean that he's a failure. It means that we are. Because the ideal has not yet come. Peace is a wonderful thing, but hard to find. It's worth working for, it's worth waiting for, and God's ultimate plan for peace rests not in uh, treaties or lessons or progress or uh, material prosperity. God's plan for peace is the maker of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised to bring peace. In John 14, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. So we read in our responsive reading this morning in Ephesians, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. One writer put it this way, The methods of Christ are methods of peace. The men of Christ are men of peace. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of peace. The principles of Christ are principles of peace. To know him is to know blessing and happiness, and to live without him is to be finally restless and miserable. He doesn't come to Bethlehem as a warrior. He doesn't come uh, to Bethlehem as a greedy conqueror. He doesn't come as an empire builder. Now, one day he will come as all those things, not greedy, but he will be a conqueror, and he will be a warrior, and he will be the king. 
but not in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, he came to bring peace. He did, he does, he will. In this tiny baby, we see the peace of God welcomed by angels and shepherds. So in this one verse, you have four names of Jesus. And this is what they mean to us today. If you're confused, he's the wonderful counselor. If you're weak, he's the mighty God. If you're scared, he's the everlasting father. And if you're just plain disturbed, he's the prince of peace. Back in 1809, in Kentucky, a traveler was passing through. He stopped at one of those little country stores. They seem to be disappearing now. But he stopped there and buying supplies and talked to the proprietor. Said, anything happen around here lately? The guy said, no, nothing ever happens around here. There was a baby born out at the Lincoln cabin last night, but that's all. Just a baby at the Lincoln cabin. His name was Abraham. You never know what may happen in the world because a baby is born. Even Mary couldn't fully imagine what it all meant that night. But that baby born in Bethlehem has become the centerpiece of human history. We divide time by his coming, B.C. and A.D., And even the ones who try to throw that out, B.C. is before Christ, A.D. is Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And those that don't like that still use the same time schedule. They call it uh, B.C.E. and and C.E., before Common Era and Common Era. But it still starts and, and, and stops, and the dividing line is still the same. It's still based on Jesus. You know, one of the things they try to teach you in seminary, and they usually fail, but they try to teach you what they call uh, the ministry of presence. That sometimes it's not so much what you say or what you do, but simply being there. One professor one time told me it was learning how to show up and then shut up. It's usually something that's learned the hard way. I got the uh, most recent issue of uh, Covenant, the magazine of Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, I got it in the mail this week. And uh, I thought you might be interested in this one particular article, so allow me to read it to you. I've copied it in big print here, so I'm going to read it from here. But it starts... As the St. Louis Arch appeared on the horizon, it suddenly hit me. I was finally going to seminary. I wondered what amazing things I would learn from my professors. How would the Lord use my classes to change me? Little did I know that one of my most precious lessons would be learned in a restaurant parking lot. Christine and I had already been on a few dates, and this time we were enjoying burgers at a nearby restaurant. When it came time to pay the bill, I reached for my wallet only to find an empty pocket. Unbelievable, I exclaimed. Forgot it again. As I left to retrieve my wallet from the car, Christine went to wash her hands. These seemingly insignificant details led to an encounter that impacted us both greatly. Isn't it amazing how the accumulation of split-second decisions can shape our lives? On this night, it included me picking Christine up late and taking lots of pictures. What if we had taken one less? What would be different if I had remembered my wallet. 
any little change in God's mysterious and glorious sovereignty, then Christine probably would never have seen her. When I returned to the table, I wasn't prepared for what I found. Instead of the gregarious, fun-loving Christine, I found a pale, shaking shell of a woman whose only words were, I could have sworn I just saw Rachel. And we barely made it out to the car when Christine began shaking and weeping in the passenger seat. My brain raced as I tried to find something to say or do. Should I share a scripture verse? Should I pray out loud for Christine? This was a big deal, so what if I blew it? If I messed up, would the relationship be over? Amid my own powerlessness and helplessness, I found myself reflecting upon Christine's story. Rachel was the girl that Christine had met while doing youth ministry at Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. She was the one Christine had led to the Lord and discipled. Rachel was also the 16-year-old whom Christine watched slowly die from the ravages of cancer. And now, years later, at a restaurant in St. Louis, it was Rachel whom Christine had seen in another young teenage face. As I entered into Christine's story, my own heart began to break. I was overwhelmed by the pain and sorrow she was feeling. What could I possibly say to her at this moment? What could come out of my mouth that could take away her pain or bring her healing? Only the Holy Spirit could warm the bitter chill of the winds of past wounds. So I said absolutely nothing. Instead, I quietly sat there and gently held her hand and simply wept with her. And that's where one of my most important lessons at Covenant Seminary took place, in a Toyota Camry in a restaurant parking lot. It was there that I learned that caring for a broken heart sometimes means opening my mouth less and my heart more. The gospel ministry can simply be taking someone's hand and mourning with the person. That night I learned the power of the ministry of presence. Some of you may have guessed that was written by Tom Rubino. Then the editor wrote in there at the bottom, After meeting and marrying the love of his life, Tom graduated from Covenant Seminary in 2010. He recently accepted the position of assistant pastor at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church in Leesburg, Virginia. Tom, Christine, and their daughter Bella will transition to their new church home in January of 2012. You can applaud. I called Tom and said, you didn't tell me you had an article. He's like, yeah, I wasn't sure it was very good. Wasn't sure I wanted to tell anybody. I said, too late. I'm going to read it to everybody tomorrow. <laughs> See, this will be good for our church, and our church will be good for them. See, the ministry of presence flows both ways. It's not just something that we do, and it's not reserved for pastors or elders or deacons. It's not even something that's necessarily human. See, I think the most important part of our verse today might just be the first three words, for to us. See, this verse is God's gift to us. It's his ministry of presence. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us. The gift of the Christ child is a personal gift from God to us. And a gift requires a response. If I put a gift under your tree, you may acknowledge it, you may admire it, you may even thank me for it. But it isn't yours until you open it and take it for yourself. 
And God has a Christmas gift for you. And it's not wrapped in bright paper and fancy ribbon, but in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It is the gift of his son. And it's a gift for you. And the gift is still there, and it must be received personally. You can never truly enjoy Christmas until you can look in the Father's face and tell him that you have received his Christmas gift. In that most famous of Christmas carols, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Philip Brooks, the, the author, great, famous preacher, Phillips Brooks has a stanza that I think is a delight at this point. It says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Today we are reminded once again of the promise of God. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look to Jesus. As the Wonderful Counselor, he has the best ideas and the best strategies and the best plans. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. And as the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we were still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. Think about him because he's there. He is present. And his ministry of presence is for you. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, thank you that you are a wonderful counselor to us who are in such great need of the whole counsel of God. Thank you that you are a mighty God to us who are in such great need of your power since we're filled with such overwhelming weakness. Thank you that you are the everlasting Father to us who so desperately need to be loved despite being so unlovable. Thank you that you are the Prince of Peace, the Son of the Sovereign, who makes peace with God for us by the blood of the cross. Lord, here there is so much grace given to us, the undeserving. And Lord, as always, we thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we are not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in the precious, powerful name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit,